Welcome to Life on Plato's Cave. I am Mario Veen. As our guide today says, it's like Plato wrote the allegory of the cave with today's media landscape in mind. In episode 4, I spoke with Masha Bronikova about film. Plato's allegory of the cave is like a cinema. But how does this change with social media? And the whole infrastructure that is connected to social media? Smartphones, data servers, mines where the minerals are sourced, and potion-filled lakes where the devices end up after we dispose of them. And what about the whole economics of attention, political entanglements and social relations? How does it change if, like Johannes Niederhauser said in episode 2, and many others have said as well, that now we carry the cave in our pocket, that we're never really offline anymore? Our guide today is Dominic Petman. Dominic is a university professor of media and new humanities at the New School in New York. He teaches courses on post-humanism, animal studies, critical theories of technology, environmental humanities, attention ecologies, popular media forms and philosophies of desire. He is the author of numerous books, including a loose trilogy exploring the relationship between eros and ecology consisting of Sonic Intimacy, Creaturely Love, and Peak Libido. I'd just like to mention the titles of some of his other books, because they're so good. There's After the Orgy, there's Look at the Bunny, there's Love and Other Technologies, and there's Human Error. And today we'll focus mostly on infinite distraction, paying attention to social media and on peak libido, which is about the worldwide decline of libido. Hi, Dominic. Hello. Ah, there we are. So I'll turn up the video. Yeah, me too. And yeah, you don't have red bars anymore. So. Great. <laughs> I'm already recording and... Uh, sure. Uh, I guess it's uh, appropriate that we're having some technical difficulties since we're going to be speaking about technology. Indeed, <laughs> yes, the two go together. So uh, I'm in The Hague and you're in uh, New York where you work and uh, you describe yourself in one of your books as a professional skeptic of technological promises and practices. So what kind of profession is that and how did you get to be uh, a skeptic like that? Um, it's funny, you, you, know, you, you tend to describe oneself um, in different ways in different contexts so uh, that's not I wouldn't call that wouldn't be my primary on my business card perhaps mm -hmm. um, but it, it, it's true that um, a lot of what I write is an attempt to complicate or uh, push back against um, you know the kind of technological boosterism we get from uh, Silicon Valley and and places like that. Uh, I guess what I, I mean, I'm paid to be a professor. Uh, as you know, you were one of my <laughs> first students. In Amsterdam, um, yeah. In Amsterdam, yes. Um, and I was always grateful that you seemed to find some interesting things in what I was saying. And you were asking me questions back then. So there's a nice continuity here. That, uh, <laughs> it's still happening. Um, 
so yeah, I'm 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 a, I'm a professor. My background was in literature, um, but I was never really satisfied sticking to one discipline. Uh, kind of too old-fashioned and restless and promiscuous for that. So I really, I guess I'm at the moment my my title is media and new humanities. So. Uh, I mean, that's a whole conversation, what new humanities might be, but I'm interested in the question of the human and the post-human or even the pre-human, uh, the non-human. That's sort of my focus at the moment. And obviously one of the definitions of the human is as the tool user, the technological animal. So, um, and media is a big part of that. If we think of mediation in general, not just TV or movies, but the, the practice of mediation itself, something we're obviously engaged in right now and pretty much everyone is all the time, Zoom. Um, so yeah, I, I guess I'm just always interested in the way that technology influences us and vice versa, that kind of symbiotic relationship just is an endless you know, world of, of questions and insights and uh, provocations. And uh, yeah, I get that's sort of my sweet spot. Um, but again, I, I, I tend to roam around. <laughs> mm -hmm. Interdisciplinary, um, I like that. Yeah, people are starting to call it a-disciplinary, non-disciplinary, uh, meta-disciplinary. I just, you know, like it, before we splintered into different silos, obviously, I think I do respect the respect the disciplines and, and uh, I'm interested in the way, say, anthropology approaches the question differently to history, um, to geology. This is the great thing about your podcast, of course, is that you're bringing all different techniques um, and approaches and lenses to bear. Uh, which I like. I, if we were all interdisciplinary all the time, it would be it would get kind of messy. So I do respect <laughs> uh, disciplines, but um, things obviously get more interesting if we open the window or step outside and start talking to each other. Um, so yeah, yeah. There's this famous I forget by who, but you probably know it. Uh, uh, the the world has problems, the university has disciplines, something like that. <laughs> right. Yeah, but it's changing so quickly. Like there are entire fields that are very healthy in terms of publishing or conferences, um, you know, environmental humanities or, uh, you know, even something like food studies. Um, but they don't necessarily map onto departments or programs yeah. or or jobs especially so the, the the way to get jobs is to replicate the structure but the interesting work is happening um kind of outside that narrow uh labeling yeah, uh, yeah. Um, would it be accurate to say that you're um trying to understand the the situation that we're in uh, this life on earth um yeah i do have the... <laughs> um you mean you mean existentially existentially or just yeah uh then you're already bringing a concept right but um um yeah just our situation on this planet 
Yes, very much so. I mean, I, I, I think I, I mean, I, I, in a way, I'm a very naive thinker, and and I'm still kind of um, bowled over by the miracle of just being. I mean, this is why, despite all his problems, I am still somewhat interested in Heidegger and his um, argument that modernity was founded on the forgetting of being. I think that's one of the most um, important um, mm -hmm. observations is that we do tend to work on autopilot so much and we get caught up in the details and we forget capital B being, um, or if we do remember it, we, we repress it again very quickly because in order to function, I mean, the whole system is predicated on kind of disavowing being um, and just sort of acting, mm -hmm. um, functioning. So, yeah, I guess my work is about trying to reconcile this ontological kind of miracle or this perplexing situation of being thrown into the world um, and how to navigate that um but also but that takes us very quickly to politics because then it's about what questions you're allowed to ask what you're allowed to do uh, it's about power mm -hmm. and of course this is yeah again why we're talking and why you're interested in the in plato's cave um <laughs> because it's it's a it's such an enduring allegory because it crystallizes uh existential questions with uh, social, political, psychological ones. You can't, you can, you can separate these for this, the purpose of looking at the details, but when you want to look at the big picture, at the allegory itself, you need to see how they interlock. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Yeah, that's in, in uh, preparing this, I was thinking, because one of the things I really like about your work is your, for instance, you wrote a book about uh, social media infinite distraction and uh another book about uh well libido and uh do we say libido or libido i don't know in english uh in english we say libido okay libido it's not an english word so you can say it however you <laughs> so <want. laughs> uh, book, a book called uh peak libido and um uh but what I, one thing i really like is that you don't you don't start with uh i define uh, libido as or I define social media as and uh, in your work you actually uh, um, show different definitions different ways of looking at it so that it doesn't become a, um, a very clear object I would say right yes part of it is to to question the unthinking use of these terms as if we know what we're talking about Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it was an epiphany, epiphany to me, uh, again, uh, Heidegger, with the question concerning technology, that uh, it's technology does not simply describe machines, things that go beep, devices. Um, it's a much, uh, it can be a much bigger category. Uh, we, we argue about the pros and cons of technology as if we know what it is, what it wants, how it works. Um, but yeah, I think the first step in critical thinking is to uh, not just 
simply come up with a quick usable pragmatic definition but to see all the different angles on it what other people have said before of course but also um ways ways of approaching it that uh that complicate our assumptions about about the object itself so with social media for instance um you know we have the sort of trademarked version which describes the platforms such as twitter and facebook and instagram um but if you take sort of two steps back then you have to have to start wrestling with much bigger questions much thornier questions like what is the social and what is media and what happens when you put those two things together like that they're very general terms obviously um but yeah what are we missing if we just uh looking at the the sort of the narrow manifestations that take up the debates or the discourse rather than the more ambient uh effects that that the that the idea is having yeah so so i think that's that's part of my <laughs> part of my process as the as the theatrical people say yeah because uh social media you're obviously not the only one who is writing about it or interested in it no. um i think people are busy with does 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 it make us maybe less social or more more lonely or depressed or isolate isolated mm. um but in infinite distraction you say that it's so amorphous that uh that it's even a question if it can be studied scientifically <laughs> yeah i mean certainly i would depend on um say data that comes out of experiments um you know i wouldn't discount psychological experiments on social media users who maybe create graphs and correlate time online to lower senses of you know lower moods or um i don't think that's inadmissible that seems like an interesting data point <laughs> but that's that's just part of part of the picture no yeah yeah how old is social media yeah i guess it's only uh, um well facebook's been around how long now 12 13 years or something mm -hmm. um there was some social media before that but that didn't nothing that had the critical mass of the big names we associate today so yeah, yeah around a, a decade and yeah. some change but obviously <laughs> um interactive forms of media have been around a long time um there's a entertaining interesting writer called tom standage who who talks about the long history of he has a book i think called 10,000 years of social media um where he talks about graffiti and all sorts of <laughs> he also describes the telegraph as the victorian internet so he's very good at making us remember that um yes we love to emphasize novelty and new things because that's part of the way we think but um it's also good to look at prehistories genealogies the long the kind of long evolution of technology and how nothing is just suddenly born out of zeus's brow but um 
they're all variations on a theme. Mm. So this is again part of my <laughs> inability to commit is that I like to, I always like to look at do the both and. So to see what is precisely new about these platforms, because I do think something new is happening in terms of its the scale and the speed and the capacity to capture our attention. Um, but it's not simply new. This is this has been coming for a long time. So it's good to understand the, all the elements and forces and things that, that led up to it. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm wondering what you, you called uh, uh, Plato's allegory of the cave before you called it an allegory, but what sort of, uh, of course it's an allegory as well, but what sort of object would you i mean it's i i guess we could call it a meme as well because <laughs> you you actually sent me a nice uh drawing of plato's cave where you climb where, where the prisoner climbs up past the fire but then um how, how would you describe that just into yeah to a mirror image of, of another cave yeah so he he thinks he's moving out, outside but he's just moving from cave to cave so so it's a cultural uh object i guess as well right that we can play with and yes it's become a trope or a motif um yes and, and a meme as you say it's uh in some earlier episodes you you list several movies that play on this theme and it's you know it's been a it's a part of my mental furniture now because i teach it very often in intro to media studies because where else can you begin? <laughs> um, it's almost like Plato saw media studies coming and invented this, this allegory for us to, uh, to sort of set the stage from the beginning of Western modernity. Uh, it's kind of uncanny how appropriate it remains. Even if It's like it becomes more and more relevant as time passes, yeah. uh, which is quite astonishing. Um, and he was... This is, again, the long history of media, you know, think of um, media studies, not just with the birth of communications in the industrial sense, but from the beginning, he, he was skeptical about even writing itself. Um, what happens when we outsource our thoughts to, uh, to objects? If we write down an idea, then our brain doesn't need to develop the muscles to remember it. And he was worried about this in a different piece and um you know i i i still get a kick out of the idea that you know the greeks were writing on tablets mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, albeit wax tablets but we we in some from some perspectives we haven't moved very far but obviously when you look closer it's very very different yeah well i guess that's that's a technology as well right uh, the the allegory we can read it we can read it in the original i don't yes. know how original greek because of this uh, explosion of writing in uh, uh, yes, ancient greece exactly. yes he he wrote it down and that then and, and it managed to survive and uh what what uh, i don't know how much we'll we'll get into the weeds um but it's it's what that great uh, theorist of technology bernard stiegler calls tertiary memory the the kind of memory that we uh, bequeath 
to objects mm -hmm. um, and that therefore can be passed down from generation to generation, which is his, um, he argues that no other form of life has this third form of memory. Um, the first two being one being the individual memory and the second being genetic memory. Yeah, so well, we can get into that because you you um, dedicated your latest book. I think it's your latest book, Peak Libido. You're right. Yeah. Um, you dedicated it to Bernard Stiegler, and yeah. um, he's not yet a household philosophy name. I think maybe in some yeah. circles, but I depends think depends on the household. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> depends on the household. Yeah. Um, so, can you maybe just speak a little bit about Bernard's Stiegler and why is uh, he is important to your work? Yeah, absolutely. He um, he's a remarkable figure. It is very sad that he's he left us too too early, uh, a couple of years ago, or well, just one year ago actually. And he was also a huge influence on my my thinking. Um, he was the one. He didn't use the term peak libido, but he essentially gave me the idea um, that because of the way society is organized, we are running out of libido. It, we kind of just extract it. We're treating it like oil. We're taking it out of the, the ground or in our, in our cases, our bodies and our souls and using it up to run the system, but we're not replenishing it. It's not sustainable the way we treat human libido. I just thought that was a fascinating idea and it it just kind of felt instinctively right but I figured I have to think this through a bit more carefully to see if that analogy really holds um so first that, of all what, what's a human libido we've we've been saying the word a few times already but uh right we haven't really... yeah well this is another one of those things that it's very difficult to find a consensus on on what it really is but i guess the thumbnail version would be libido is the life force hmm. and that's what it was for freud who popularized the term um it's it's that's it's the battery <laughs> that gets you up it's not just the physiological battery it's the thing that gets you up in the morning it's your mojo your motivation um it's the thing that makes you want to uh connect with other people or to create projects um the libido is it's not just your sex drive that's how we tend to think of it as just your sex drive so if you if you're feeling you know not particularly frisky we'll say you're you have a low libido and there's even people trying to medicalize these things um and create pills to increase the libido but for stiegler it's a more collective social thing you know it's present in a, a dinner that you're making with 10 friends you know it's so libido is the thing that we're definitely losing in the time of covid because we don't have as many opportunities to cultivate it together but um, in terms of the human exceptionalism libido yeah this is a question in my book you know is it possible for an animal to have libido mm -hmm. because we all know of obviously animals procreate um, but to what degree is that completely instinctive? And is there any pleasure? Is there any poetics? Is there, for, for human humanity, libido is the kind of um, the excess, 
that happens above and beyond the pure instinct to procreate. So libido is is that part of the psyche or the yeah. soul that can be seduced, that can be perverted, that can be repressed, sublimated. It, it it's kind of creates the steam um, for the end, the steam engine of of the world, the yeah. human world. Yeah, in, in my day job, I work uh, as an educational researcher in medical education. And one of the things that they are concerned with is empathy. So mm -hmm. that if you go to see a doctor, um, you, can, you can see a doctor that knows uh, all the technical skills, that knows how to diagnose the illness and, and everything like that. But there's no, there's no real human interest, no you, real... Um, Right. Uh, like that. So, so that could be an example of, of, of course, in, in the medical world, what we see increasingly is that um, everything is reduced to a, a technical skill uh, yes, or a knowledge. Kind of transaction. Yeah, a transaction. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in fact, you're reminding me that the, the, maybe the key word for Bernard Stiegler is, is the word care. Yeah. You know, to, to take care. And, and, for him, the libido is that which allows you to take care of the beloved object or, or thing, and rather than just simply use it up. Um, so it, it involves cultivation, nourishing, uh, and taking time, which is really important. Like the libido takes time. Yeah. It's not just a quick fix. It's um, not just a... His, his um, major work uh, is called techniques and time. So... Time is obviously very important, I guess. Yes, it, it, yes, it is. Um, so, and and obviously we're in this hyper-accelerated world where it's almost explicitly designed to avoid opportunities to to cultivate care. Yeah, yeah. I think. Well, I've I've heard it say anyway that. We had this dream in, uh, well, at least before I was born, when when uh, they started thinking about computers and industrialization and everything like that, that we would have machines do everything for us and we would just work like a four hour work week or something like that. And we would have all this time to just hang out and create poetry and everything like that. Yeah, it sounds and, wonderful. Yeah, it? yeah, yeah. But I've never <laughs> heard. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of innovation, and um, I get it to like the OneDrive and and uh, the um, uh, writing and everything. But you never hear somebody say, "Whoa, I have this word processor. I uh, word processor. I don't need to write letters anymore. I have so much time on my hands." <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That was um, optimistic, shall we say, that, that, that idea. Um, part of it is just unrealistic in that, yeah, like you say, just because we invent word processing doesn't mean we don't want to write. Um, but part of it uh, is also that it's obviously suits uh, the powers that be that um, most of us are drones because, um, you know, this is part of the argument around why it'll be so difficult to bring in something like the universal basic income, uh, because then <laughs> people won't be so desperate to work in Amazon warehouses as much. 
Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I do think time is maybe one of the most important political um, factors. Yeah, so that that's a little bit about. Obviously, there's much more to say about uh, Stiegler. Mm. Um, when we if we go to the Plato's cave, when you think of Plato's cave, do you have like um, uh, the, the the shadows mean this, and uh, the prisoners are this, and the fire is this? Do you have an interpretation like this, or do you approach it in a different way? Uh, it depends on. Again, it depends on the context of, you know, if I'm just teaching 101 or something, uh, some specific uh, subject. But no, what I like about it is how open it is and how many questions it provokes. Um, as you can probably tell by now that, yeah, I'm more interested in interesting questions than, than rushing to, yeah. to answer them. Um, which is, becomes a problem eventually because you need <laughs> answers eventually. But um, well, I, I spoke to uh, uh, astrophysicist and theoretical physicist uh, yeah. Vincent Eke, and he said that if you, at least in physics, if you have the question, you're already what halfway or at least oh, halfway. Good. good, good. I'm glad the hard sciences <laughs> have my have my back on this. Yeah, yeah I enjoyed that conversation. Um, but as you also said in the in the film, I mean that's so suggestive that it's 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 like a, a movie theater. The it's hard not to see the projection mechanism at work here. So um, the strange prisoners would be the media consumer. They have the kind of half hypnotized or fully hypnotized uh, citizen of the spectacle is is what it suggests to me and that the the extent to which we become so involved like you know i'm more likely to know the lives of people in netflix shows than my own friends <laughs> which is a strange thing if you think about it you know my, my i spend more time with imaginary flames flickering on my wall i even have a projector digital projector so i kind of live inside Plato's cave every mm. day. So I feel like a strange prisoner. Even before COVID, you know, I was doing this voluntarily more than I should. So, and the, the amazing thing about the smartphone, which is how younger people watch media, is it's almost like they've shattered Plato's cave into a thousand million pieces and we carry them around in our pockets. So even if we are outside now, <laughs> we prefer to take out our little piece of the cave and watch a little flickering show with this new technology. Yeah, I, um, I guess you and I still live in a, a world where I think many people still have that, that we have a very clear idea that there's a distinction between online and offline. Well, I catch myself using those terms still, but that is very, I realize it's also pretty old fashioned because if, even if I walk around outside, you'll see people constantly on their phones or taking photos to turn the offline world into the online world within two seconds. So it's more like a Mobius strip where it's just one single plane, mm -hmm. but maybe a little twist in there somewhere. And, um, you know, another big influence on me is uh, Jean Baudrillard, who is famous for 
coining this phrase hyperreality. And he spent a lot of time trying to explain his idea. It's not that we just simply stepped into a virtual world, an illusion, and the real world is still out there, a la The Matrix. And he inspired The Matrix, in fact. Um, Neo's reading a copy of Baudrillard in the film. Um, but that hyperreality has, it, it's like a map that has become the territory. We live inside hyperreality, even if we don't. Mm. Um, even if we're just walking around outside in the so-called real world, because everything is so mediated by images, including our perception, including our imagination. He has this wonderful line that, you know, America needs Disneyland in order for the rest of America to seem real. <laughs> Um, but in fact, the whole country is Disneyland for Baudrillard. Mm. So again, kudos to Plato for almost, I mean, he didn't see how he, he, him and Baudrillard would disagree because Plato believed um, in, in truth versus appearance. Whereas Baudrillard was like, truth has, appearance is truth. Mm -hmm. You know, that they flattened on top of each other. So you can't make that um idealistic distinction anymore the shadows are the real and that's why he, even though he inspired the matrix he had a bit of he had a nice little critique of it which was that the matrix is the kind of film that the matrix would make about the matrix <laughs> well you you really have to see um uh what is it a great guy or a free no, free, no, free, guy. Free, free guy it's yeah like the hyper hyper matrix uh yeah. movie i think yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely, it's, I need to see this film. But the, the idea of taking a red pill and then suddenly seeing the truth, that's the legacy of Plato yeah. right there. And um, I guess like that's also the way, you know, a lot of companies operate that you can take a pill and right. maybe you won't see the truth, but you will, it will cure you of something or it will mm. give you something, uh, you've, something you've always desired. Yeah, I think the most interesting guy in, in, the, in the Matrix is the guy who gives a little speech about this steak I'm about to eat. I know it's not real, yeah, but it tastes real to me because I'm in the Matrix. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. so that's good enough for me. I, yeah. mean, I don't care. As long as it seems real, everything's fine. And I think that's more or less the attitude of of most people yeah it's just um, it's just as real as anything else i mean the steak is just as real as my taste buds and and the brain in my head and yeah um yeah so why get worked up over i mean do, why take a red pill to to live in some kind of a post-apocalyptic sewer <laughs> mm -hmm. so yeah it's a it there are some good things about ideology in there and false consciousness and the extent to which um we don't want to be woken up no we don't yeah, yeah well yeah. that that's one of the things uh i love about plato's cave because i had this i guess most people have heard about it and they have a memory of what it is but this is one of the things that uh, i like about close reading um because that's uh, i started writing a book uh about it which i'm still writing and and doing this podcast mm. um because uh my version that I had in my head is well, he it's like this philosopher king who finds out the truth 
is liberated and then he comes back and then uh, he's misunderstood and i mean who doesn't like the idea of being a misunderstood genius right <laughs> right but then when i reread it uh he's he's liberated but he's in pain he resists um if if someone has to drag him up and um uh you know if if uh if he gets the opportunity he would run right back to his seat and yeah. of course then he comes to the surface and there, there's one moment where he realizes that this, the sun is the source of everything including the cave including the fire including the shadows but then he goes back again i mean why on earth would you go back into the cave again yeah. and I think he's miserable again. He he says uh, Plato says something that he would he would think it better to be like a, a serf on the surface than uh, a king in the cave or something like that, right? Right. So uh, it's quite different from the idea that while well, we're out of the cave and we're happy and everything. No, he's. I don't think happiness plays plays a large role in there and. Um, you could even wonder if you know this whole story, maybe it's a warning. I mean, why would you want to do this, right? Yeah, it's basically uh, kvetching about how painful being a philosopher is, spending so much time with the truth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and he's jealous of the, you know, the, the people who aren't bothering themselves with all these questions and problems. But you're right, I think this is the beauty of close reading and, and the fact that every primary source, people debate them and argue about them and get quite snarky about them because they've turned them into caricatures. And you know, you can dismiss Nietzsche for this or you can dismiss Spinoza for that, but or Freud especially, you know, but if you do close readings, it's it's far more nuanced and complicated and uh, you know. Um, Descartes wasn't as Cartesian as we we think he was yeah. often you know nobody's completely coherent when they're especially if they're trying to think so they're looking at you know they're, they're exploring different angles and things so yeah I agree it's a great project to take something everyone thinks they know and showing the real textures there I want to share something about while reading your book, something changed in uh, how, how I saw the cave because I did see it first as a cinema. Mm. So in the cinema, they're all sitting and, and watching the, the shadows, but they're all watching the same shadows, right? There's, there's a statue of a cat and there's a shadow of a cat. That's pretty clear. And everyone sees, they, they, mm. everyone thinks they see a cat and everyone is mistaken that it's a shadow. But in Infinite Distraction, you you write about Krakauer and Walter Benjamin. Mm. Uh, you write that the spectator in the cinema has little choice but to be distracted by the film itself, since there's no opportunity for one's own reflective opinion. So there, uh, I mean, this pretty much still aligns with this, right? That the, the film, I would say, in the before I would say, well, the film is there, at, their attention is captured. Maybe they don't need the restraints because their attention is captured already by the shadows. Mm. Uh, and there's nothing in their world that would even have the thought occur for them to get up or something because that exists in, an, in another dimension or something like that. But it's still 
kind of a collective distraction, a mass distraction. Um, I don't know how to ask this question, but it's, uh, so this is still seeing shadows as film, but when you speak about hypermodulation and hypersynchronization, it's a question like, do they all see the same shadows, I guess? Right. Yes, the architecture becomes different with social media. Um, I guess that's why I see it less as being the cave englobing us, surrounding us, but um, somehow the strange prisoners have staggered out of the cave, but brought some of the cave with them. And um, so that the, the, yeah, this is a really complex point that I haven't fully <laughs> uh, kind of diagnosed or diagrammed, but it's a dialectic or a tension between the will to, to synchronize, to be all watching the same movie. And as you say, the freedom to be um, pursuing our own interests or following the cat or the shadow we want to follow. Um, this is supposed to be the liberating thing about new media is, you, you know, in the old days, there were three TV channels and you just, you were a prisoner of the program, <laughs> programming schedule. Um, but now in theory, we could all be listening to, you know, a million different podcasts and, and people are, but at the same time, there seems to be far less diversity in, in, in terms of the mainstream, you know, when, if the new Taylor Swift song comes out or whoever's, I think she's probably old fashioned, old hat now, um, but whoever the latest pop sensation is, they put something on YouTube and within a few weeks, it could get to 1 billion viewers. That's like a huge percentage of the planet. So there is still this, even though we're on different devices and have the potential to be looking at a million different um, shadows, there is this human kind of instinct, which obviously publicity and advertising take advantage of to be sharing the same experience. Mm. Um, so I think there's something, you know, wholesome and good about that, that we are social creatures and we like to share, but it's, it's exploited obviously by, by the culture industry. Um, the genius of hypermodulation I mean, this was the um, Stiegler's point was that he called it synchronization, hypersynchronization, and it's we sort of turning into sheep in at a scale that had never been seen before because digital technologies can shepherd us extremely efficiently towards specific things. Um, but my asterisk for that, my footnote, was that yes, we're being hypersynchronized, but the reason that's so effective is because we're also being hyper-modulated. Because um, if we were really all on the same page, I think there would be, um, again, a type of critical mass that would have a cultural, that would lead to a cultural shift. Um, instead, we're, again, the libido is kind of moved around the network the way that Enron, the energy company, used to move energy around the infrastructure yeah. so that there wouldn't be an explosion, you know? So it's amazing the way the internet, if we're all suddenly angry about climate change, 
the internet can throw us, you know, a cute viral video of, of yes, a cat doing something cute or a kitten. And so we can be furious about fossil fuel industry. And five minutes later, we're giggling at some cat. <laughs> yeah, and there's, there's always someone or, or Stephen Colbert or something. I yeah, think Stephen exactly. Colbert even made fun of it that he just, I don't know, even after September 11 or something, he said, well, right. here's just a video of a cat playing or a cute, cute uh, panda sneezing, I think it was. I think we all need this. Yeah, but that's also obviously we do need it, need it emotionally, but it's also politically dubious because it, it diffuses any indignation that could that could turn into something useful, yeah, um, actionable. And actually, what I found interesting last summer during the pandemic was interesting because we were forced to be on the same page by by the lockdowns. And when there were the police brutality, the George Floyd murder, there was finally, we, everyone, nobody could understand why there wasn't the type of social movements we saw in the 60s, yeah. given how dire things are becoming socially again. And um, I don't think it was a coincidence that we had demonstrations in the streets uh even though there was a pandemic because we were all you know the sneezing panda and the cute kitten wasn't enough anymore because we we were all paying attention to the to that particular injustice at the same moment and it, it spilled over into out of the cave or whatever yeah <laughs> so i think um in a way i think that did support my argument that we're not just being hypersynchronized, we're also being hypermodulated. And the, the task is to synchronize ourselves on our own terms, not to simply watch the latest pop video, but to demand um, genuine practical changes in the way yeah. things, are, things are done. And, and the hypermodulation is something it's really done. You, you write in the uh, big libido that um at least the hypothesis about uh, society being socially constructed which is kind of uh well um is that um um that it takes a lot of work to keep so we 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 tend to think about our lives and the way society is structured as the way it is it's normal it's what we're used to naturally but, yeah natural exactly yeah good uh, <laughs> good you you <laughs> used that word <laughs> yeah um but it takes a lot of work ideological work to have society be this way to have i mean there's no reason why mm. i'm now on uh, a windows machine and there's facebook and there mm. those things are very contingent it could have just been different but it seems like Facebook is a real thing that you have to be on. And if you're not on it, then you have to explain why, or maybe it's part of your identity that you say, well, I'm not on Facebook. That says something about me. Mm. Um, but Facebook was, is, is code. It's, it's constructed. Um, uh, where was I going with this? Yeah. So that, that they're behind the scene. I guess we should talk about the puppet masters because behind the scenes, there's a lot of work. Yes. being done um 
on the one hand about uh, to to uh, to have society be constructed in a certain way for whatever purpose, making money probably or power. But on the other way, it's constructed in such a way that it gives us the feeling that we are in control and we are at the steering wheel. Mm -hmm. Because I can set my privacy setting on Facebook. Right. To an extent. <laughs> to an extent, yeah. Well, but yeah. it gives me the feeling that I think yeah. who maybe it was even you that told me about buttons on elevators and that don't really do anything but give you the feeling of being in control. Yeah, I think that's a Zizek point. Ah, okay. Just put it in there so you feel like you're contributing to the infrastructure, but really it's just a placebo button. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that's true. I think sometimes it does go faster <laughs> if you touch it, but <laughs> yeah, it's a nice idea. Um, yes, yes, the puppet masters. Definitely, this is one of the biggest questions, especially if you're interested in, in power, which everyone should be. Um, yeah, who, who organized this, the cave this way? Um, and why don't the strange person, I mean, it is, it is again, an allegory for kind of bread and circuses um, approach to politics that as long as people are distracted or entertained and have a minimum amount of food, then uh, the people in power can, can breathe easier. So, yeah, it's um, like you say that the social construction argument, it's not saying that, you know, society is just made up. It's not true. It's just saying that it was because it was built like a building, it could have been built in a different way. Yeah. And, and, and so there's no reason uh, ideology naturalizes culture as if it's like a tree or just grows this way. But as you've also just said, it, it actually takes a lot of energy to make people think that, um, that it, it's, it's so hard to change. Um, I mean, obviously there, there have been some revolutionary moments and then we just found ourselves back to square one. So there are <laughs> kind of um, uh, depressing precedents around things like what we might call problematically human nature or just certain certain patterns of cultural entropy or yeah um but you know just the very different the difference between something like the u.s where it just seems like you'd rather it would be easier to to change gravity than to change the fact that you need to be employed to have health care um it just there there are certain things in the US that just seem impossible which um but in Europe are taken for granted no yeah. i think that's actually one one of the disruptive uh effects of the covid pan pandemic mm. because suddenly many things that were possible <laughs> that that people said before no that's not possible uh look right. at the economy and suddenly i mean there was some I would say collective action and uh, uh, yeah. Anyway, yeah. there was like a little crack there. I think. <laughs> yeah, it's that's it. It, it. it it's in these liminal moments when we get a glimpse of how things could be done differently. Unfortunately, what's happened, rather than the you know the there was the utopian 
potential where we realized we were working like crazy for for other people a very small minority and that maybe we should be getting more collective and um you know cooperative uh rather than letting companies like uber just sort of <laughs> take over the world uh and funnel the money to like eight people yeah um it's it, unfortunately what's happened is we just doubled down on these kind of bad new habits and and you know the elon musks and the jeff bezos and the zuckerbergs are just a, a lot richer um so it's going to take more we've kind of uh, yeah we've kind of retreated further and further into the cave as long as amazon delivers to to the cave we seem to be <laughs> um tolerating it but it's it's a shame because um this was a kind of glitch in the matrix moment when we could have gone okay maybe we don't need to um you know imprison this many people for these minor crimes um that's even legal in half the country uh you know the, yeah or or we can we don't need to have planes flying this much yeah we don't need this much um disposable crap <laughs> but that's that's yeah. another thing about the cave that the prisoners uh you would say there's a group of prisoners but they're not a group because they cannot turn their head they don't see each other so if they would hear uh if i would hear my neighbor saying something mm. i would think it's a shadow on the wall uh talking to me oh really isn't there a part where they start debating which animal will turn up next oh that's right yeah they so i think uh, they play games yeah you're right they yeah play so games i think they are aware of each other but like you say they're forced to look forward yeah. so it's it's this weird it's almost like gaming communities now where they're talking to each other through well through headphones yeah, now. so they can hear each other they can hear each other they, but they know they they're not, not the, because plato writes that when the puppet masters talk to each other then they think it's the shadows right so it's but the, the prisoners masters, are, yeah. are they're predicting trying to predict which shadow is coming next yeah which is very much what we spend a lot of our time doing is yeah. like oh i bet this is going to happen or if we argue over a film or something we're essentially doing the same thing yeah um Henri Lefebvre, a, a French theorist from the 50s and 60s, said uh, this, he, he wrote this, yeah, 50, more than 50 years ago, 60 years ago, he said, um, because of new media, that we're going to experience an isolation all the more profound for being overwhelmed with messages. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing how prescient he was about, so yes, we're being incredibly social in quotation marks, because we're communicating constantly. But it's such mediated forms of communication that it's not satisfying to go back to the libido you know it's not nourishing us in 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 a multi-sensual way which as we are animals you know that part of the forgetting of being is that is forgetting that we're animals and yeah. that we're mammals and that we need more than emojis and means to survive yeah yeah well, okay, so now I'm I'm torn between three directions to take this because <laughs> there's so yeah. many ways. So uh, maybe I just list them all three, and you can do you can do whatever you want. Yeah, okay? yeah, sure. Okay, so the first one is that um, the way we talked about it before, it could seem that there's uh, a, the puppet masters, they're the culprits. There, like, there's like uh, uh, Jeff Bezos or the Illuminati or 
the flat earther things it's it's nasa that that make us believe space is real um uh, so so that i kind of like those stories in a will because in a way because they they tell the story that actually there is a button that you can turn uh it's just that there are evil people at the button but there is a button there is a steering wheel mm. so uh and and you write well you write uh we are being played like a giant keyboard but at the same time you make clear that there's no uh it's headless there's no one person or one group responsible and and i really like that because one of the things i like about foucault is that he's able to make clear uh on the one hand yes there there is all this power and we are being played but on the other hand there's not an evil genius not one yes doing that no one no one uh evil overlord right yeah um okay so that's one thing let's start there because i forgot oh, okay. the other two but i probably <laughs> okay. will remember again <laughs> sure well yes i uh, this is part of my both and tendency right is to see that i do think that there are a small group of people making decisions that impact billions of people um but i don't think it's part of one coherent conspiracy because there's just too many competing interests at that level and just too many factors um so it's <laughs> we're definitely being played but you can't trace that to a single document or a single map or a single plan it's it's there's a lot of improvisation going on there's a lot of experimentation even the one percent get things wrong but overall you know the system's working for them and they're trying to close it down even more with each day in terms of uh, you know, legal recourse and even voting rights and things like that. So it's bleak, but it's, it's, um, Adam Curtis is really interesting this way. He gets dismissed sometimes. Do you know his films? Uh, I've heard of it. I don't know if I've seen one, but it's about, yeah. yeah. He, he has some, I mean, they're very much worth watching if only to debate because he he was an academic then became a filmmaker at the bbc he has access to the most amazing archival footage and he does a great job at telling these big stories about the history of technology the history of power and he plays this game too so he does he sort of has these conspiracy theories but he also has a whole series on this sort of headless effect, the way power can be like a swarm and that decisions can be made unconsciously and collectively. Yeah. So it's, I mean, I think it, the problem is not, I, I, I'm a Foucauldian to the extent where I think it's not, yes, we can't just kill uh, the King of Mordor and everything, we can all go back to living like happy hobbits <laughs> it's that the hobbits are part of the problem because we because we drink the kool-aid 
and 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 this is what ideology is i love this definition of ideology from futurama where a robot says i choose to believe what i've been programmed to believe <laughs> that to me is perfect definition of ideology where we go along with things like patriarchy and white supremacy and uh you know all, all the damaging business as usual because we choose to do it yeah. um so that's that's why it's 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 sort of a double problem you're, you're dealing with both and that's why um the hypermodulation and the hypersynchronization it's all part of it because we're uh there are puppet masters it, it's, it would be naive to think there aren't powerful men mostly men wearing suits making decisions that make our lives harder and yeah you know more impoverished um but we can't just blame them because we outnumber them by a long shot you know we we could if we if we had the will we could we could yeah change things we you know we could we could um change the the shadow play and even get out of the cave altogether but we're happy arguing when you know we, we we settle for the steak that we know isn't really steak or the tofu burger that isn't really a tofu burger yeah <laughs> the, the menu instead of the meal yeah yeah and and well that yeah that's a great adorno point that we've been learned to be satisfied with the menu rather than the meal yeah and um we're paying yeah. i mean I, I was wondering if that was intentional because the subtitle of infinite destruction is paying attention to social media mm. and uh of course everyone knows if something is free then you're the product mm. so uh, did, did you also mean it like we're paying with our attention yes absolutely yeah it's so an we're, economy we're keeping it alive economy. we're paying with our attention we're fueling it uh with our attention Yes, I mean, I have more and more people on my Facebook feed popping in who's just saying things like, Get, go outside, stop, don't like this post, just go outside. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I can't help but agree with them. I mean, it's hard when outside is full of COVID. Yeah. But um, yeah, sometimes I think I'm, I'm old fashioned and romantic enough to think, yeah just log off I mean, somebody <laughs> said even didn't they say i read somewhere plato was the first person to log off <laughs> yeah 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 well if like baudrillard then you leave disneyland so you can believe that you're not in disneyland anymore right yeah so even if you're walking around new york city new york is a phantasmatic yeah. mediated city so it's not like you're in the real world suddenly i had but this... it's all it's all relative yeah yeah I, i've been uh obsessed with new york i've only been there a couple of times but uh from from a young age actually and i came there in my 20s mm. and it was so strange because it felt i mean new york is the is the, uh, where so many films and series and everything takes place mm. so it was so strange to feel i felt like i was in those movies it didn't feel real yeah. well everyone has lived yeah exactly because yeah. of hollywood everyone has lived in new york yeah 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 <laughs> um it's obviously a little different if you're obliged to pay rent but <laughs> it's you know you could say the population of new york is like four billion yeah yeah so uh okay that was the first thing <laughs> i've remembered the second thing and it's um i i emailed you about this sometime because it was 
sometimes you hear something that just everything clicks together. It was about for me about Heidegger, I guess, and Sartre as well. Uh, another one is I've heard someone describe Heidegger saying, well, the, the one thing we all share is the one thing we cannot share. So that's, I mean, if you look at the prisoners in the cave, it's the one thing they cannot share is that they're imprisoned there. Mm. Um, but I, so I was uh, probably in one of your writings that is no longer available, but you uh, wrote a story about, or it was, I think it happened to you that you were in a bank. And you were in line well in line being in line is like you're there there's a lot of people you're in a room mm. full of people uh but you're you're not a collective you're not a we uh and then somebody in line got a heart attack yeah um and and died and there was some commotion there uh but at one point it was clear that well the person had died uh the medics were on their way but they weren't there yet yeah. Uh, and there's nothing you you couldn't save them. And and the the moment that stuck with me is how you described that after some time there was some confusion. What do we do now? Yeah. And then people. And then everyone went back to. Yeah. Back to, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, it is it is an amazing capacity humans have to bracket death and mortality. Again, this is part of the forgetting of being, right? So you, if somebody, uh, Baudrillard called dying the ultimate faux pas, right? Yeah, so if you, if you die, then that's, you know, very socially unacceptable. Yeah. And um, so part of this is part of the forgetting of being is like, you know, in older cultures or non, still in, in non-Western cultures, you would have serious mourning periods and you would have ceremonial ways of processing it and coping with it um, but we don't have that that's a technology we don't have anymore except writing the word condolences to each other so yeah that was an amazing moment to to see it in real time happen where people say you sort of bracket out mortality so we can keep making money yeah it was almost like a platonic allegory <laughs> right in front of my eyes. This was in Geneva, in Switzerland. And um, yeah. it, it's so, so far we've, we've been talking about, it's maybe a little bit bleak. Um, yeah. So is, isn't it? <laughs> I don't want to let you go before, because you uh, on the back cover of your, uh, one of the blurbs on your, a book from uh, Alan Stokoe, he says, uh, this is utopian thinking in uh, the positive yeah. sense of the term at its most audacious. So, so far, what we've talking of, what we've been talking about is, isn't very utopian. So uh, can you, can right. you lead us out of the cave, uh, please? Yeah. What, what's your, <laughs> what's your idea? How to, yeah. how to well, move this forward? Is, this is partly why I admired uh, Stiegler so much is his understanding, he, he was, in one hand, he had the most pessimistic portrait of humanity available, but he also the most optimistic, like he, he these were two sides of the same coin. If you're, if you're relentlessly positive, we should be suspicious of you because you're probably just a life coach or a motivational speaker. Um, but if you're recognizing all the kind of troubles of the world, then that is an important step towards moving closer towards a, 
at least a, a more utopian situation. So I think, you know, you can't separate the light and the darkness. Um, it's artificial to do so. But yes, and um, hope springs eternal as well. You know, you do until it doesn't, but you do hope um, that making these kind of critical readings and diagnoses is part of a wider effort for everyone to live in a more humane way. And I think um, attention is key to that. Mm. Um, you know, Simone Weil said that attention is the greatest gift you can give to anyone. Um, and teachers know this and lovers know this. So cultivating attention is one of the foundational things in order to, to bring back a, a, a renewable sense of libido or eros or just being together and care. So this is why, yeah, the question of time is so crucial that the, we, yeah, you're right. Yeah, we, you're right that the, the ultimate libidinal object is the future. Right. Yes. So we, we still what's what's terrible about the current moment is how relentless it seems and that there is no, you know, there's this famous quote uh, that we it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism now. Um, so given climate change and given the pandemic and given rampant income and inequality and racism and everything else it's it is hard but the very fact that more and more people are recognizing the extent to which we're in the cave the problem of course is that most of us just vent about the cave on the cave bulletin board social media <laughs> um, the next step is to figure out yeah how to go how to log off collectively and remember being, remember being together. And I think that's happening. I mean, COVID is so weird. The temporality of COVID is so strange and we've been so locked down, but surely, surely something on the other side of this, the very fact that so many people have quit dead end jobs. Yeah might be there might be something heartening there that people aren't willing to slave away for minimum wage um, any longer and so hopefully there'll be changes in the way labor is organized um, and which will free up more time which will free up more opportunities to to reflect to create to collaborate to do to do this all these things that we hoped we could do when the robots take over yeah. um maybe maybe that's the scenario won't be that utopian but um i do feel we're groping towards uh different ways of being that um have to be better than uh you know the the, the scenarios that silicon valley are engineering for us yeah and as, as I understand it, you you look for it in in uh, medium-sized groups, like small small communities, and and kind of keeping things open. I guess maybe it's an yeah. abstract way of saying it, but um... I mean, people will come up with different solutions, and yeah. they don't 
have to be necessarily so-called organic face-to-face -face little communes or something like people tried that and that that didn't necessarily work the same tyrannies could happen just on a smaller scale yeah <laughs> but uh yes there's there's definitely again we're animals we're we're mammals and just eating together playing together that's just so important and and we just always put that off to a week to the weekend but then we're too busy on the weekend and then to summer and then for whatever reason it doesn't happen in the summer and so yeah i think we need to bring a new sense of urgency that COVID allows to say no more waiting you know there's a sort of carrot on a stick structure um and you know you'll get your reward later but if there's no more pensions if there's no more retirement why should we wait <laughs> if there's no more planet even you know this isn't an argument to be hedonistic and just dance in the flames but you know maybe we can dance and douse some flames at the same time <laughs> yes that's a strange image but uh maybe that's surreal enough to to end with uh, a kind of uh <laughs> right dancing fire <laughs> dancing um, in the fire yeah. department yeah thanks yeah there, there are so many other things i would have liked to get into like what you write about climate change and, and uh, ecology and perhaps perhaps another time yes it's um, ironic of course that i'm talking about we need more time yeah but have we have enough. to go <laughs> but later yeah <laughs> Um, maybe just um, uh, if people are listening to this and, and they find this kind of stuff interesting, what, uh, I mean, how can you start to study this? For instance, like, are there some films that you, uh, like, that could be used as reflection tools or something else just to start thinking about this stuff? Yeah, uh, films are often a good way, ironically, <laughs> again, since the you're going to be in the cave but it does it does show that there are different types of shadows you know there are shadows that are just designed for entertainment or distraction and some shadows are designed to prompt further thinking um, and reflection so yes adam curtis would be a good place to start um, there's a film i like to teach that's actually pretty old now and very low budget it's belgian called thomas in love which oh, I don't know. Was, it's about an agoraphobic um, guy. It's, it's incredibly, it, it hits different, as they say online now in the time of COVID. It's about trying to create some sense of community through computers. It's very well done. Um, uh, there's also a film called We Live in Public, a documentary about um, maybe the first couple to just put cameras throughout their room and let the internet watch them uh, voyeuristically, but also suggest things. Um, that's a really interesting kind of early text about what the 21st century might look like. Um, Black Mirror, of course, has, <laughs> has all sorts of things that that to provoke discussion, uh, maybe for social media, nosedive, where everyone's rating each other, even after actual, like where we're Uber drivers or something, but for everything. Um, Sai Ming Liang's films are very slow and 
meditative and they're almost good just physiologically to slow your body brain everything down he has a film called walker which is 45 minutes of a monk just walking incredibly slowly through hong kong and you know my students hate me when i make them watch <laughs> it but it's it's just an interesting experience to try and just to see how impatient we've become yeah um I love this idea that Norway had a slow TV mov movement. You know, they have they would just show someone knitting at prime time for, for hours, or yeah. or they'd put a camera on the front of a train we for have, nine hours. We have and, a little bit like that in the Netherlands. We have a show about uh, I don't know what's the right name, but let's say old people who go travel around in their caravans. Yeah, and it's always the, the same, and they don't do anything, and it's one of yeah. my favorite shows. So yes, exactly. Yes, Slowing there should down. be more of this. Just slow TV, slow movies. Yeah, um, giving you an opportunity to to really, because ironically, you know, these these blockbuster films, they're just so fast. The editing so quick. It's just, it's like it's grabbing your you know your collar all the time screaming in your face and uh, that just makes me disengage whereas if you slow things down then you notice more details and you're more likely to actually get involved um, so i mean there's some of the places I, I i would start but if you if you're already um into critical theory then you probably already know stiegler um, but Baudrillard can be just fun to read um, as, as, a, as a kind of organic intellectual. If you haven't had the, the necessary training, it's Baudrillard is, is still, I think, one of the best guides to uh, the way Plato's cave functions today. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Check out Dominic's website, dominicpetman.com, for more resources on what we talked about. Visit livefromplatoscave.com for ways to support this podcast. If you like, subscribe and share this episode, it will appear on the cave wall of many other people. The mighty algorithm will take care of that. Next time, we'll dive deeper into the relationship between the human and the technical, and how this relationship affects climate change and how transforming this relationship might be a way out of the predicament that we got ourselves into. I hope to see you again next month.